This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Holly Kamisa, Associate Director of Communications for Arc Street Press, and I'll be your host today. Today, our guest is Sasha Fisher, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Spark Microgrants, whose mission is to build a world where everyone lives with dignity and determines their own future. Spark Microgrants works to catalyze rural communities facing poverty into action. The organization developed the first proactive group-based microgranting model. Since 2010, Spark Microgrants has partnered with over 100 rural communities, launched three country programs in Rwanda, Uganda, and Burundi, impacted more than 75,000 lives, facilitated more than 1,100 community meetings, and doubled its budget every year, surpassing their goal to raise $1 million in 2014. Sasha Fisher was raised in the abstract art world of New York City. As an undergraduate at the University of Vermont, she studied both studio art and created a self-designed major in human security. In 2008, Sasha helped to launch a specialized secondary school for girls in Sudan. In 2010, she moved to Rwanda and launched Spark Microgrants. Since then, she has spearheaded projects in two countries for over 71 poor rural communities. Sasha is a Cordes Fellow. Sasha, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Holly. Great to be uh, with you on the, the, the show. So you grew up in New York City's art world. What was that like, and did that somehow lead you to your interest in giving back at all? Yeah, it's actually interesting. At first, I wasn't quite sure where the art world uh, fit into the work that we're doing in East Africa. And it, it took me some time to recognize how much of my value set and perspective is coming from uh, the way that I also approach art. So I had the fortune of growing up in Lower Manhattan. Um, my dad's an abstract painter, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a kooky world to grow up in. And I also did painting throughout high school and university. And when I graduated and I left for Rwanda, um, I, I felt like I was leaving part of it behind. But uh, what ended up I realized is that a lot of my painting and a lot of the work that I really love in the art world is really um, an expression and examples of process-driven art. So abstract expressionism, where you're seeing how the painter approaches painting um, through the actual finished product. Um, so like a tacooning, you see his brush strokes, you see the layers in the, in the painting. Um, and that was always important for me in my painting as well, is really about the process and building things into the process that I wouldn't be able to expect or plan for later. So it's not a very you know plan um, and execute, but really plan a process. And in Spark, that's largely what we do as well. We're not trying to plan for people. We're trying to create the space and a really nice process that's adaptable to local communities really anywhere so that they can fill that space and define it in the way that they see is best fit. Um, and so that, it, it actually does really relate to one another in terms of the value set there and how to think through process and have something that can evolve over time and finding the beauty in that evolution. That's all really interesting. Um, did you have any other experiences growing up that led to your work with Spark Microgrants? 
Well, I'm sure I had lots. I mean, I had an incredible family and, and uh, parents who were super influential, of course. Um, and, I, you know, growing up five blocks north of Ground Zero was, you know, called, I think, the whole city at 9-11 to think more globally. I was in middle school at the time, and I was up on 23rd Street when it happened, but I lived just five blocks north from there and had my father gone to the post office that day. Um, you know, my life would be very different now. Um, and so having experienced the city go through that, it really called me to think more globally and to think it's not just about what's happening here at home that affects us here at home, but it's really the whole world um, is interconnected and, and the lifestyle that somebody has many miles away um, is just as important to care about because they're another person um, as it is important to care about because it actually does affect our um, lifestyle as well. And so it really encouraged me to think about the parts of the world that I didn't know that much about yet and go out and learn about them and also learn about how are we thinking through creating a world where more people can meet their basic needs and live with dignity um, and what does that work look like and how can we make it better and how can we make more rapid progress um, on that work today because there are still billions of people who cannot meet their basic needs and live with dignity. Mm -hmm. You were a self-design major in human security at the University of Vermont, um, which is interesting to think about hearing you talk a little bit about 9-11 and that experience. How did that major tie into studio art and what did it involve? Yeah, it's a great. I've, I loved um, at UVM, I was able to create that major in human security and I feel really fortunate for that because it, it basically enabled me to put together courses from economics, political science, anthropology, sociology, all together in one major. So I, I basically got to take whatever I wanted, um, which was really wonderful. But it, I ended up designing that um, a, a, on aside from the, the artwork that I was doing because I didn't feel, I, I was really interested in how we're getting to that world, right? A world where everybody can meet their basic needs and live with dignity. And in each department, I was feeling like I was just getting a, a small sliver of the bigger picture about how we're going to reach that world. And so when I sat in economics classes, you know, all of the courses were thinking about the world as made up of businesses and the private sector. And in political science, the courses were thinking about the world as made up of states and governments. And then in anthropology, you know, they were thinking through cultures and communities and in my view, I needed to have all of those lenses together to be able to understand um, how our world is progressing and how you can make the most effective um, change in the systems to enable people to, to live better lives. It sounds like you definitely took advantage of this interdisciplinary approach to your global concerns and sort of how expansive that is. Mm -hmm. Are there other ways that your education and your time in college contributed to your concern for Africa specifically and assisting rural communities to beat poverty? Sure. I had the fortune when I was a freshman in college, I had a, a lot of eagerness to get involved with a nonprofit organization. I had done some fundraising in high school around Sierra Leone and um, raising money for that country, and I was got really excited about it. I was very passionate about raising the funds, but I realized I had a very poor conception of how to evaluate the organizations that we were donating to. So I really didn't know what the difference was between donating to Africare versus World Vision 
versus partners in health for somebody else. Um, I could just read about them online. I didn't really know how to evaluate them. And so when I went to college, I was keen on getting into the field and working with an NGO so I could learn more about that. And I ended up having um, somebody came into my anthropology course my freshman year to talk about an organization she was starting with a group of people to build specialized secondary schools for girls in South Sudan. And this was a part of the world that I didn't know much about. And so I got very interested and ended up, she was kind enough to let me get involved with the organization uh, when I probably had really very little utility to it, uh, being a, you know, freshman in college at this point and never having gone to the continent. And two years later, I traveled with her to South Sudan when they were building the first school um, and got to shadow her in going around, building the school, um, doing interviews with students, really the whole range of activities. And that was fantastic. I loved being over there. It was just uh, wonderful to get to be on the ground and experience another part of the world and a beautiful one at that um, with an absolutely very human feeling to it. And so I think end up not really wanting to leave and thinking, also seeing a lot of the challenges on the ground with other organizations that would swoop in and, and impose projects on these communities um, felt very wrong to me when I was there. And, and when I left, you know, I knew I wanted to get back to the region, but figure out how do we, instead of coming in and swooping in with the answers and building projects that are unsustainable, how do we actually support communities to own their own development and launch the projects that they want to launch and that it's, it really should be their choice um, what happens in their villages and that they should own it. That's fascinating. So that sort of led, it seems, to your decision to launch Spark Microgrants. Um, what else led you to decide to launch Spark Microgrants, and what did the process entail for you? Hmm. Yeah. I've seen a number of incredible local organizations uh, around the world. I think in southern India and South Africa, um, just some remarkable local community-based organizations that would meet on a weekly basis, um, you know, a group of mothers, talk together, they'd start small projects, and those projects that were inherently and organically from the community seemed like the most powerful ones, um, partially because the projects were working well, but more so because you could see the confidence levels in individuals that otherwise would be sitting and waiting for support to come in, and you could feel the sense of confidence um, that they had in progressing their own businesses, progressing their own communities, and supporting their community members. And that's one of the most beautiful human traits we can have. I think, you know, whoever you are around the world, um, we all share that common need for community um, and for that social network. And so when we were starting Spark, I was really interested in how, how do we multiply out those positive benefits of community-based programs and support communities to work together um, and build themselves to be stronger. And so when we started up, we decided we were interested in working in remote areas that aren't necessarily organized today. So if a community is already organized and already taking action, that's great. They don't really need us. What about the communities that maybe have some sort of tension internally? Um, they don't have any resources. They don't even know that they could go looking for those resources. And let's reach out to them and be proactive about it and provide them an opportunity um, to come together and work together as a community. And uh, by far the more impressive impacts that we see 
are not about the projects that communities are launching, although they're very impressive schools and farms and electricity lines that are significantly improving the lives of people in the village. But the far more important thing is that communities are staying organized after the process. Ninety-seven percent of the communities continue to meet regularly, and they'll linger after the meeting. So at the first few meetings, you know, they're potentially feuding, walking out on meetings, um, and three months in and six months in, they're starting to hang out after the meeting, talk together, collaborate on other projects. Um, over 70% have gone on to launch secondary projects independently of Spark afterwards. Uh, that's incredible change. Um, it's incredible community-driven work that's happening, um, and that sense of community is really strengthened over time. That sounds great, and it sounds like you have fantastic results. How specifically does Spark Microgrants help these communities without resources to pursue independence and economic success and find that organization that they maintain? And can you talk about what the facilitated collective action process is? Hmm, absolutely. So we actually go out to remote villages and through local facilitator fellows, so we recruit and train um, university graduates from in-country young Ugandans and Rwandans and Burundians who are passionate about giving back to their home countries. We train them in our facilitative collective action process, um, which is a six-month-long series of weekly meetings that the facilitator takes a village through. And often men and women are sitting together for the first time. And in this process, in the first month, they're talking about their village. They're talking about the resources they have, the history of the village. The second month, they're actually setting goals for their village. Where do they see their village in three years from now? Maybe they want to improve access to education for all of their children. Or they want to be able to have two meals a day instead of one meal a day. After they develop out their goals in month three, they're developing out pathways to actually reach one of those goals. So how are you going to get more children to be able to access primary school? It might be through building a new school or through building a bridge to allow folks to access an existing school that before was separated to, by their village um, by a river. And so then they choose one project that is the, the best project to reach their goal. And in the last three months, they're developing a budget, democratically electing a leadership committee, um, doing a risk assessment and sustainability plan. And by the end of the six months, they have a really solid plan for a project, um, but also this communal experience of having worked together, discussed and deliberated on projects, on budgets, on leadership, um, and this experience is what they carry through in the long run that then, because they have a positive association with it, repeat in the future. Um, that is that facilitated collective action process um, that you were mentioning earlier and is, is the core of SPARK's work um, that we're really keen to, to expand to more communities in East Africa. We are going to roll it out across a, a district in northern Uganda in the coming years to show its impacts on um, bring uplifting an entire region, and we've started training other organizations on it as well. We want to, in the future, share it out so that this is not a model that is only being used in East Africa, but really can be um, a process for catalyzing communities into action any, anywhere in the world. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world.
from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate Under 30 interview with Associate Director of Communications Holly Kamisa and Sasha Fisher, co-founder and executive director of Spark Microgrants. We talked about East Africa and expansion. Uh, in what countries does Spark Microgrants work now and where specifically are you looking to expand? Right now we're working in Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi, and we're looking to focus, we've worked with 111 communities across these three countries so far with incredible results. They've been, we've focused on the most remote and the most in need communities so far. And what we're looking to do with the next 100 is to look at one district and say, if we took this district in northern Uganda, um, which is a post-conflict region, has a lot of potential um, and very little limited access to resources. If we rolled out Sparks model across the district, are we going to be able to see that district lift from being post-conflict to being ready for economic investment? And that rollout um, will be momentous, right? It'll show uh, the possibilities for regions that today are kind of teetering but have the possibility and the potential um, to get to a place where they're joining, um, being in this development progress, uh, constantly moving forward. Um, and that's really big. So we're not looking to go to new countries right now. We'll support other organizations that are working in other countries to roll it out in those regions. Um, but we're really focused on um, proving this out in a district and then through that um, being able to grow it out in the future so that these can be national programs that are um, strategic ways to support rural villages across an entire country that is post-conflict and help that whole country move forward. Does your model translate from district to district, or does it need to be modified with each new place? The model itself, because it's a process, um, it's modified. The inputs are constantly being modified, obviously. Um, so the project types doesn't matter to us. Um, the community members and, and how they are using the process changes. Uh, but we do have some ways that we amend the process to react and support to communities that are um, searching for specific types of capacity. So some communities come to us and say, we want some extra sessions on um, gender equality. Some come to us and say, we want some extra support on financial planning. Um, and others will come to us with other types of support that they're looking for. And we have plugins for our process where we can provide extra support on those areas that they've identified um, they would like extra support in. So it's an adaptable process um, that can be tweaked per community, so it really is meeting their needs. What are some of the different projects that Spark Microgrants has helped to launch? Well, we ourselves haven't actually launched any of them. It's all on the community side. But our partner communities have launched some really remarkable programs. So, for example, in Yarotosho Village in Rwanda, they built 60 latrines um, for households with a $6,000 grant. 
which means that they actually built uh, what are essentially bathrooms um, so folks could go to the bathroom in a private place and increase sanitation and health. Um, after, you know, before they rolled this out, it was, the village was one of the worst in the districts for um, sanitation, and afterwards they were a role model for sanitation in the region, and the local schools were singing about sanitation, and um, and the village continued to meet and, and launch an animal project in a farm and, and build a home for um, orphans in their village afterwards. So it was very exciting to see that happen. Um, there's a school in Uganda um, that was launched with $1,600. is one of our first communities ever. Um, today it's operating on a budget of over 100000 um, with over 300 students at the school. There's communities that have launched um, electricity lines and health centers, um, media projects, farms, an absolute incredible array of solutions um, to reach the goals that they have in their local villages. What improvements have you seen as a result of your work with Spark Micro Grants? Hmm. You know, I think that there's it's twofold. So one is in the communities, right? So in our partner communities, we see them launching fantastic projects, sustaining them. Um, with our 111 community partners, there's 92% project sustainability. Um, 97% of the communities are continuing to stay organized, meeting on a regular basis. Um, and over 70% have already gone on to launch a secondary project, often a third and a fourth as well. And those are, you know, a lot of great, great signs that things are working well in the fields. We're also seeing incredible increases in female participation through the process, female leadership, um, more civic engagement all around in the villages we're working in with their local governments and engagement on the government side to the villages. And so that all has been very, very encouraging. Kind of on top of that, though, there's another encouraging layer, which is that I think there's a conversation um, that's being had across international development, which is, is kind of stemmed from a frustration of traditional aid that is top-down and prescriptive. So people are fed up with groups coming in, spending lots of money to implement projects and then leaving, and those projects being left unused. Um, it's not... It's, it's not right to the communities that they're imposing those projects on. Um, it's not a smart way to spend money, and people are fed up with it. And so there's a, a larger conversation happening right now around how, what does the future of international aid look like, and how do we actually spend um, money in a way that, that is truly supporting the communities and the people that we intend to support, um, and what are the mechanisms to do that? And so I think that Spark's model is an important component of the conversation about how to get more of the international aid resources directly into the hands of community members that we are seeking to support. And that conversation is getting a lot of steam, um, and funders are really starting to progress towards looking at how their funding is not just controlled by the organization they're granting to, but how is that organization engaging their end user? How are they engaging the people that they're ultimately seeking to support in the actual program development and the actual running of programs and the allocation of the resources that they're investing in the NGOs. That's a really exciting trend, and we're hoping to push more of that um, into the future so it's not just us that's working more with community engagement, um, but that this can be a larger uh, a movement and shift within international aid so that those resources do get into the right hands. Really interesting. And how has your experience been overall working with funders and making your mission clear to them? 
Hmm. There's a, a range of different funders out there. We have been incredibly lucky um, to have folks backing us that uh, and partnering with us really both in terms of thought partnership and in terms of funding for the programs on the ground um, that are just super aligned. They're interested in how we are, are getting, you know, how we're progressing towards a world with greater dignity. Um, they're interested in new mechanisms of providing support to some of the most remote villages in East Africa and around the world um, and being really intentional about how they're giving. And I think we've learned a lot from our relationships with our funders. Um, you know, I know that our best funders are ones who sit and talk about our strategy, really buy into the big goal and push us to think more critically um, while also providing us the funding to go out and do it. And I think that mimics what we're doing in the field, right? We're providing the facilitation, the support um, for communities to think through what their goals are and providing them the resources to actually make progress against it. Um, and so that's been, I think we're really, really fortunate to have that um, there's, there's just a host of, of great foundations that are, have backed us for a long time um, and that are backing us now, including groups like the Siegel Family Foundation, from, who was one of our founding partners um, early on and you know, up until today when we have a, a vast array of incredible groups backing us. And how has your experience been providing support in different world communities? I think I'm just generally really excited about the progress in the sector. Um, the communities we work with are incredible. They're, they're absolutely remarkable. And um, the amount of hard work and inspiration that they put into um, their local projects, but also into their local communities, um, is really something that I think we can learn from and try to, to mimic in other parts of our life and other parts of the world. Um, and it's a, it's a good reminder that um, there's, there are things beyond the metrics, right, that there's, um, there can be proxy indicators for things like community um, trust and community cohesion, um, but it really does matter, um, and, and making sure that we are able to push for the things that matter and not just the things that are easy to measure um, is really important, and I think that's an important conversation for this, this entire space. Um, let's not just think about that short term, but let's think about what really matters here um, and what's going to be important in the long term. What challenges have you faced in helping to foster development and social change, and how have you overcome those? Hmm. Well, there's a lot. I think probably challenges all, all the time. There's uh, a <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the fun in it. Um, when we were getting started, you know, I think there was. It, a lot of pushback on how, you know, why would we be trusting and supporting villages to um, spend money directly? Uh, and it was a little demoralizing hearing the um, lack of trust and the lack of, uh, of, of support for local decision making. And what's been encouraging is that even though there was a lot of warnings against it at the beginning, um, Today, there's a lot more traction for that type of support, um, and I think we're hopeful that we're able to prove, um, to help prove that point that uh, local um, and really community-driven, not just a local person, but a community that is benefiting is the driver of the change, um, is a way smarter way to, to do development. It's, it's more effective, it's more um, cost-effective as well, and more sustainable. And so having those conversations still today um, can be a challenge. 
Um, and we uh, hope that we get better at being able to communicate the impacts in the field and being able to push forward um, why it's so important to provide direct resources to the communities that we're um, working with in East Africa. Um, and that, you know, really donors should be trusting them and not trusting me uh, to make the decisions in their villages. And what role does empathy play in Spark Microgrants' approach? Hmm. That's a nice question. And I think that there's, I don't know if it would be directly empathy, because I'm not sure how much we're trying to or believe that we can be in somebody else's shoes. I think part of the appreciation is that that we recognize how vastly different a lot of people's backgrounds are who are involved in this work, right? Um, I did not grow up in a rural village in East Africa, and I really appreciate how much I do not have that background. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, anything that's, you know, I can appreciate and support um, that can grow organically locally, you know, I want to because I know that that background isn't there. Um, and, but I think that what makes us really strong as an organization is that our entire team is really highly aligned around our values. Um, and, and our values are around being facilitators and being community-driven um, and being authentic and passionate about the work that we're doing. And that really lives out in everything. Um, you see staff members, um, communities in the field, and our partner foundations all across the board um, are thinking about ways that they can benefit the whole versus just benefiting themselves and thinking through how to do that strategically. So not just in this one moment, how can I help somebody else, but how are we intentionally creating this space for people to be able to take hold of their own future um, because I know that if they own that, it will be more successful and more fulfilled for them. And I don't have to play a helping role. I can play an enabling role where we're sourcing the resources um, that will enable them to do that. What advice would you offer to young people seeking to start their own organizations like Spark Micro Grants? Gosh, follow what you get super intrinsically motivated and passionate about. It's uh, way more fun when you love what you're doing and you're doing it because, you know, you love um, both the mission but also, like, the the work that you've got to put into building it out and all the challenges that come along the way and um, dealing with people disbelieving in it. Uh, you've got to absolutely love it and, and, and have that intrinsic motivation. Um and, and trust yourself also um, as much as possible with that. Because like, we can get a ton of advice, and it's incredibly useful to have that supportive community around you. Um, but you got to know uh, what direction you want to head it in. What does the future hold for Spark Microgrants, and what would you ideally see happen? Well, we are quite ambitious with what we would like to see happen in the world and uh, and how Spark relates to that. You know, we've developed this model that is working in varied villages across East Africa. And with this early success that we've been seeing in the field, we want to grow it in um, a consolidated region, like I was mentioning before. So in northern Uganda, roll it out, prove it out on that level. Um, but eventually down the line, make this a, a, you know, make this the norm. Don't make this be the sideline approach. Make this be the mainstream way to provide support and for us to build the world we want together. Um, 
we want to see this model being used around the world. At, and we want to be part of rolling that out, but we also want to be part of just supporting larger scale institutions to um, ultimately be rolling it out as well. Um, they've got the reach and any village, whether it's in East Africa or if it's a community and a block in a city in America, or if it's somewhere in the Southeast Asia region, we all feel good when we're making progress on something that matters to us. Um, and so we want to see this approach and this model being used um, around the world by larger organizations and by governments one day. So hopefully we will uh, be able to prove it out and scale it up and support those institutions um, through training them and enabling them to roll it out in the regions that they're working in as well. Excellent. Well, Sasha, thank you for being our guest. The best way to reach Sasha and to support Spark Microgrants' work is through sparkmicrograts.org. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.